This, this is the Second Second Story Podcast. So I'm the oldest of three brothers, a role that is simultaneously exhilarating and exhausting. When we were younger, we fought all the time, wrestling in the basement or the living room over what movie to watch or whether we could have pizza for dinner. Now that we're almost adults, we speak to each other in a language rarely understood by outsiders, sending texts nobody else could understand and sharing secrets we don't dare tell anybody else. Today on the Second Story Podcast, we explore what it means to have that sibling relationship, to have a person who knows you inside and out, and what happens when one side of that relationship goes dark. Anne Hemingway is a frequent Second Story collaborator. She earned her MFA from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and currently teaches fiction writing at Columbia College Chicago. This story was presented live at Story Week 2013, an annual collaboration with Columbia College Chicago to present Second Story to new and exciting audiences of students and writers. With her story titled Horses, Paper Dolls, and Dreams, Second Story is proud to present Anne Hemingway. The other night, I was on the phone with my sister again, talking about mundane things, like we usually do. But I know something's wrong. Something is off. I'm happy to talk to her, but I can't shake the feeling that I've stepped off a cliff. Then I notice the phone is the blue wall phone we had growing up in one of our many houses. I'm asleep, and I'm dreaming. My sister has been dead for 15 years, and I've had 15 years of dreams. Dreams where she shows up from a long trip, dreams where she just took a few years off. That's like 180 dreams, probably more. You get bad phone calls when you're in bed. Sunday, December 7th, 1997, about 9 a.m., I'm asleep with my then boyfriend, Marty, in my dark, dark bedroom. Of all the places I've lived, this was the perfect bedroom for sleep, dark as hell with one shaded window. We'd been seeing each other for a couple of months and I have not told him my sister is dying. When someone close to you is dying, you need a part of your life where you can pretend there is no death, or I did anyway. Marty made me laugh all the time and we didn't talk about much and I knew he could beat the shit out of anybody. The phone rings and it's my mother and it's the first time I remember her calling me my darling. And as I listen and speak and all I can say is, okay, yes, okay, Marty knows. He's suddenly wide awake, his blue eyes open in his Irish face. What happened? What happened? Because he knows it's something terrible that strangled thing in my voice. I'm in the hallway and I'm shaking. He keeps asking what happened. I've shaken maybe twice in my life uncontrollably, and the other times it was with rage. This is something else. This is my hands a blur in front of me. This is leaning against a wall and saying in a voice high-pitched and awful, my sister died. What am I gonna do? What am I gonna do? And he asks again, what, what? And I say, she had cancer. Marty looks at me like, huh? He says, I didn't know, you didn't tell me. 
I didn't tell him either how my father had yelled at me earlier that week because I hadn't booked a long enough Christmas visit, how my father, who yelled at me maybe three times before in my life, and his were the first honest words anyone had said about her condition, about the truth, when he hissed, your sister is dying. My sister's name was Leslie. I rarely say her name out loud. I'm sure there are reasons for that. And I won't tell you about the death train I took because I refused to get on an airplane. Everyone was either going to or coming from a funeral. I'd had my wisdom teeth out earlier that week and had dry socket, and that pain just mixed in with the other pain. I always forget that. I had my last conversation with Leslie on the Wednesday before and told her about my fucked up wisdom teeth. Although I hadn't seen her since August when she was in remission, I knew how sick she was, but knew too she was still alive, and until the moment she was not here anymore, she was herself. We would talk like we always had. I knew she wanted nothing but the day-to-day -day moments of being alive. I've heard about how much having wisdom teeth out hurts, she said. It's pretty bad. Yeah, it's pretty bad, I said, because we're sisters and people have told me we talk the same way. Have they been able to, any, to do anything about the pain in your hip, I asked. Can't they do anything? Oh, Annie, she said, and I heard resignation in her voice. It's all the same thing. That's as close as she came to the big deathbed scene you always see in movies. My sister was in the first dream I remember having. I was probably less than three. You may question how the hell I can remember a dream from that long ago but I've never not remembered having it. And I know the house we lived in, we lived in three different houses by the time I was four. Besides, it was a pretty darn simple three-year-old girl dream. A long line of little girls circling our gray house in Elmhurst, all holding hands backwards, running in plaid accordion pleated skirts with suspenders and white Peter Pan collar blouses. I was holding my sister's hand and she pulled me along. She was taller, she was older, she was six. From family albums, I know my sister had that plaid skirt back then. I must have admired it, as I pretty much admired and adored anything she had, anything she did. Her clothes, her ability to whistle between her teeth, her library books, her seventh grade diary. Oh yeah, I read her diary. I was one of those little sisters. I wanted her freckles, her pretty feet. I wanted to be able to make stuff out of construction paper or make a fashion paper doll like she did when she was 13. She made it groove in swinging 60s clothes and called it Jennifer. And when I was 11 and she was 14, I wanted to be able to move in the smooth, prim way she walked in a bikini. But starting when you're four and your sister comes home from second grade and has the fortitude to teach you to sing the melody of wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen while she sings the harmony, adoration happens. The adoration continued even from through the time I was 10 until I was 15 and she went away to college and she hated my guts and why not? I read her fucking diary. <laughs> every letter from every boyfriend I could find. I messed in her makeup, her WLS silver dollar surveys, 
and imitated every goddamn thing she did. My sister died on the couch in her family room or out the window in a small strip of blue she could see Long Island Sound. Her young children were with her, our parents too, and her husband who told her over and over how much he loved her. The love that poured out of him, our mother told me later. I have never seen such love. When you're a kid, you don't say to yourself, I am happy. You say, I feel happy now, if you think about it at all. You remember pleasure, contentment, something in your body. I took baths with my sister. Do kids, do kids do that now? Good. We'd spend a long time in there until the water got tepid. When we'd get out, our room, the room was cold, and we'd fold ourselves into fetal positions and, and, and next to each other on the bath mat, and our mother would put towels over us and rub, rub our backs. There, breathing in the scent of the towel, my own clean skin, I'd feel my sister's arm warm against mine. Was I happy? I was safe. I was warm. My sister was next to me. When you get older, you grow up, you know there are moments when you are happy. You know there is nowhere else you want to be, where the big words like contentment, peace, happiness are real and in this moment, and you know it. And they are usually simple moments, so simple as to be indescribable. You see someone you love out the window, and you know they are coming to you. You are curled on the couch watching bad TV with your friend. The man you love has his head in your lap, and you are looking at his hair and you know you are happy. You can live in this moment forever. It is something like grace, something to do with love. When I was in my mid-30s, I went to visit my sister and we went to ride the horse she was leasing. She'd taken up riding again. She'd married, had three kids in school. We got the horse out of the stable. She'd smacked him on the hindquarters and called him fatty. Then we went out in the ring she showed me what she'd learned, put him through some paces. You want to ride him, she asked. Sure, though it was 20 years since I'd gotten on a horse. She boosted me up, all 98 pounds of her, her thick straight hair cut short. She took hold of the lead and chatted to me, informed me, yes, bossed me. Her head turned in my direction as it had been all the, in all those family pictures where I'd stared like a space case at the camera. I sat high up on that big old horse, and my small big sister led me around, and I might as well have been four years old. I might as well have been running down the sidewalk with my arms spread out like wings, like I did on Westwood Drive when I was little, and waiting for her to come home from school. And she would have her arms out, too, to greet me in her checkered dress. And on that horse, all those years later, I was happy, and I knew I was happy, and I could stay on that horse forever because I was Leslie's little sister and there was nowhere else I ever wanted to be. In January after she died, I went back to Connecticut for a week to take care of her children while her husband returned to work. While they were gone, I reverted to my old ways. I snooped, I filched. I looked for her handwriting on anything, but it looked like she'd learned her lesson from living with me. There was nothing private. I read her children's baby books. Billy eats with gusto. A list of chores on the cabinet wall in handwriting that is too much like mine. But in a basket on her bedside table are her glasses 
and beneath them is an old curled paper doll with a few faded paper bell-bottoms. It's Jennifer. It's fucking Jennifer. I go to her closet, and there are her riding boots with mud still on the heels. And that's when my knees give out, and I'm on the floor hugging those boots, and the kids are coming home from school in a half hour, and I can't get off the floor. So I crawl to the phone and call a friend who helps me get up to get the fuck up because I never believed before that you shake. You fall down. You don't know how to move unless somebody tells you how. But you get up. You get up because the kids are coming home from school. You get up because you're alive. You get up because maybe you get a moment of grace. In the 15 years since she's died, I've been in and out of love, bought my own place, fixed one of my best friends up with Leslie's husband, Bill. They live together now. But I still have the goddamn dreams. Most times it's the same. Leslie, or I, Leslie and I are on the phone or she shows up. Those dreams are repetitive to the point that I wake up and roll my eyes. That shit again. But then there is this dream that was different, that I had one night a few years ago. Leslie is holding my hand and leading me around a horse corral. We're running and she's leading me like she did in that first dream, like she did on that horse she called Fatty. She's bossing me. She's bald and in a flannel nightgown. I never saw her bald from chemotherapy, but at the end she was. We run and run and we're laughing and she is bigger than, and older than I am. And then we're in my kitchen my house at my Gray Formica 1960s table, my apartment that I lived in longer than I lived in any, of my, any house in my childhood. We're drinking coffee and chatting. We're catching up, and I know we discuss her children, especially her youngest, Kristen, who was seven when she died. Leslie crosses her legs under a nightgown, sips from the cup, and tells me, it's hard to take this form so you know who I am. And I know this is something else. So I asked the question I've always wanted to know, who doesn't? So I asked her, Lele, I asked, using the old name, my own name for her, the name I haven't said aloud until this moment, since the day I helped spoon her ashes by the stone wall fence. Lele, what's it like? Meaning, what's it like to be dead? Because we're just chatting, right? Having coffee at my house? I can ask now, I can ask her. Her face splits in a smile and all the freckles are there and the thick bangs across her eyebrows just like back when she hated my guts. The bangs she had before I was her maid of honor, before I was godmother of her first child. And Leslie always had a huge ass smile, but this was bigger. Now when that smile splits her face, great thunderclaps of light echo around her. Oh, Annie, she says, answering my question, saying the name that only my family calls me, the name she gave her daughter. Oh, Annie, there is so much love here, you can't imagine it. What relationships will you hold on to in the afterlife? If people can exist in our memories, are they really gone? This story was curated by Megan Steelstra, 
with a live sound design from Second Story House Band Seeking Wonderland and performance direction from Jess Kadish. You can always reach me for comment on this or any other Second Story podcast at ozzy at secondstory.com. Be sure to follow Second Story on Twitter at Second Story or on Instagram at Second Story Chicago to get behind the scenes of our curation process. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so more listeners can find and hear this work. Second Story podcasts are brought to you in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the City Arts Program, the Chicago Community Foundation, part of the Chicago Community Trust, and the Arts Work Fund. Second Story podcasts are produced by Eric Hazen, with special thanks to Sherry Pentamone, Danielle Ezel, and C.P. Chang. We share our stories so you'll share yours. Now go out and knock them dead with story power. I'm Ozzie Totten, and this is Second Story.